The Tenant Bill of Rights fight makes headway as the Lexington City Council subcommittee hears about income discrimination. App Harvest has reached some deals in selling off properties while in bankruptcy, but the sale of one property points to just how often the taxpayer ends up getting the short end of the stick. And then finally, in the latest example on why government should never be involved in charity work, the Bashir administration has sent out it would appear over 1.2 million in relief checks from the Western Kentucky, Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund, which he never should have sent in the first place. We'll have all that and more today on the Andrew Cooperetter Show. But before we dig down into it, please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe. As always, I plugged that at the beginning, but also as well, I want to encourage you to watch and listen to the podcast version. If you're listening on YouTube, Facebook, Rumble, or Twitter, you're more than welcome to do so. But the last segment of today's show and most shows moving forward will actually only be available to the podcast listener. So if you want to catch that last uh, uh, that last segment, just head on over right now to the podcast form. You can listen to it on Spotify, Apple, um, you know, iHeart, uh, Pandora, any major podcasting platform. You can listen to it there. Head on over there and listen to it so that way you're able to get the entire show for you. But without further ado, let's dig into it. Oh, and by request, someone had requested this. If you'd like to contact the show or talk to the show, email it at info, the word info, at theandrewshow.com. That's info at the andrewshow.com info at theandrewshow.com that is the best way to reach me too if you want to have uh, some communications with me you want to send me something send me ideas tips tricks whatever your thoughts on the show you hate it you love it whatever you can send me that there and also as well of course you can leave a five-star review on the podcasting platforms but without further ado let's dig into it so a few weeks ago I did an episode concerning a trend of uh, cities passing parts of or all of tenant bill of rights legislation. This has happened in Louisville. It's happened in Northern Kentucky, and it's being pushed forward here in Lexington. And I did an episode about it, but let, to inform you a little bit about what it is, the Tenant Bill of Rights is a series of demands that tenants are making on the cities to make on landlords that include demands like landlords should not be allowed to run background checks, credit checks, and for uh, evictees uh, to, to provide people who are getting evicted out of their homes to get free legal representation during evictions. Now, in the prior episodes, I went into great detail about these requests and how they won't lower the cost of course of rent and actually cause greater access to housing to actually be hurt in Lexington or other cities where it's been passed. And as rents and deposits will be forced to go up in order to offset the damage and unpaid rent, landlords will be forced to now consider uh, that be in their risk assessments because of course they're taking on additional risk because they're not allowed to to you know the less risk you take the cheaper things can be that's just fact of the matter the less risky a loan is the lower the percentage the less risky of a tenant that the landlord can ascertain you are the lower the rent can be but if you're not allowed to do background checks or anything else and it's literally a gamble well you're going to have to rise raise the cost of rent. And this is something that anyone who understands basic economics, basic business could see coming from a mile away. If you increase the cost of doing business, 
then prices will increase plain and simple. However, what kind of logic should we expect from a group of people that believe tenants deserve a bill of rights? And, and, and that's a crazy idea in and of itself, because, of course, rights are not things provided to us by someone else. Rights are something you're born with from God, uh, according to our Constitution, God-given rights, of course. Um, but you have no rights to shelter or food or right to medicine. You, you have a right to pursue those things without government involvement, or at least we're supposed to. But when it says rights to life, liberty, and property, it's not saying you have a right to somebody else's property and life and liberty. It means that you have a right to your own and government should not intervene on your rights to life, liberty, and property and should stop others from intervening on your rights to pursue those things. But these people, they don't understand that. They want to have rights to someone else's property. But if I have a right to property, if I actually have that right, then, well, my, then your rights can't attack to you and, and pull down my rights. The only time a tenant gets rights from a landlord is when we have willingly entered into a contract. And then in, in that contract, it would have a series of agreements and rules and so on and so forth that we agree upon. The tenant will pay me this amount of money. I will provide this service to them for that amount of money. That is a contract. And once signed, well, then what has happened is that a landlord or property owner has given away certain rights to their properties, to their land, in order to... Um, make money in, in return for a monetary return from those they're giving it to. This isn't a hard thing to understand. This is basic contracts, a basic idea, same with employment contracts, things like that. You have a right to your own life. And then when you sign a contract saying, I will give you this part of my life, but you will give me money back, uh, that is part of it. And this is really not hard and really not complicated. Um, but there isn't a... Uh, uh, a band of what's what's happening though is that people just don't like the price of rent and people also don't like landlords this is just a common thing we're seeing in our culture people dislike landlords but if you want the price of rent to go down if you you think all oh, you big mean angry landlords are all just out here money grubbing and and a lot of times they're upset because they can't get a home loan but they look at their landlords who can get multiple home loans and they say something is fair, it's not right, and it must be their fault. Instead of looking at the fact that the reason why rents are so high or they feel like everything else is so costly is because they have government in the way. I mean, look, the average landlord owns maybe two or three properties. I mean, there's, there, it's not like there's bands of landlords coming together and price fixing. The prices are set. It's not because landlords are just all greedy somehow, but prices are set because of the market. And if you want to be upset about how much you're paying in rent, well, you need to look no far farther than the government. It is cities and counties doing things like weaponizing zoning laws, urban service boundaries to, to uh, stop developments from having access to utilities, buying up property development rights, and, and those types of things that's causing issues in cities like Lexington and others. And it causes a lack of housing, which in turn increases the price of housing. This isn't the fault of the landlords. It's the fault of government intervention. However, these facts that are clear and apparent to anyone with half a brain has been overlooked 
um, as a committee with the city council, or of course, maybe not overlook, maybe the city council is just considering this because if they admit the other, that they themselves are the reason why uh, housing is so expensive because they continue to spit to force landlords to have higher uh, costs due to their policies. If they admit that, well, then in that case, they have to admit they've done something wrong and that will never happen. So instead, the city council is hearing from this tenant bill of rights activists and, and to hear about one of their specific desires, and that is a non-discrimination on source of income. Now, at first, this may make you think landlords are saying, well, I see you make money. I don't like the fact you work for, I don't know, like a political activist group or something like that. I don't like how you make your money. So I'm not going to lease to you. I don't like that company. Or perhaps you could be saying, are, are they talking about, you know, like not renting to, you know, maybe maybe strippers or people like that, but that's not it at all. What they're fighting over and what they're talking about is they don't want property owners and landlords to be able to say, I don't want to take Section 8 or other housing assistance vouchers, and I don't want to take someone in as a tenant where someone else is paying their rent. I only want to bring in tenants who are working and paying the rent themselves. And there's a few good reasons why landlords may make this decision. Because while perhaps these types of decisions may lead to lower rents that you can get from somebody. We'll talk about that more here a little bit later on. What this does, though, is it does allow you to say there are certain risks I don't have to take. Remember what I said at the beginning, near the beginning of the segment, that landlords are making risk assessments. The riskier a renting situation is, the more money they're going to have to charge. And so, if they end up in a situation where they're not allowed to opt out of Section 8 or not allowed to opt out of uh, different ways people are being paid, and if they're now renting to riskier tenants that are more likely to destroy the place, well, then, of course, landlords are going to have to raise the prices in general. And they, well, we'll dig more into the pricing and how this affects it here in a bit. So there's a few good reasons, though on why landlords maybe don't want to take Section 8 or don't want people, someone else paying for their rent. And so first, let's talk about why landlords may not want somebody in there who isn't paying their own rent, um, but they're not on some kind of housing assistance. Their rent's just being paid for someone else. And, and a good part of it deals with just taking care of the property and then reliability of payment. First, taking care of the property, you're not the one who paid your own deposit. You're not the one paying your own rent. So you have no skin in the game and people are a lot, lot, lot less likely to treat things the same way they would if they own it or if they have some skin in the game. If they're worried about getting back a couple thousand dollar deposit, for an example, just think of rental cars. Um, you know, this is a perfect example of rental cars. Now, granted, you do have some financial uh, uh, hooks there, of course, and insurance and everything else. But here's when, when people drive rental cars, it's a well-known thing that on the, not I guess the whole, but rental cars are a lot more likely to have been driven more aggressively than cars that were owned by a private person. And the reason why, of course, is that people get into rental cars and they know if they blow the engine, uh, uh, drive the, the crud out of it, and just don't give a care about anything else, it may not happen while they're in it. But if the motor blows sooner rather than later or uh, issue, mechanical issues appear sooner rather than later, well, they just won't have to pay for it. Um, 
Now, I don't do that because I'm not a jerk, but it's just a well-known thing that that's what people will do when they don't have to personally pay for the consequences of their actions on a whole. They just become less respectful of the areas that they're in. Unreliability of payments. Who's paying your rent and why? Especially if they're not on the lease with you. If an argument breaks out between people and rent stops and, and that causes rent to stop payments. If you know, your parents are paying for it and you get into an argument with them, so they say, well, I'm not going to pay your rent anymore. Well, that's now an issue the landlord has to deal with and be concerned with. Now, of course, there's ways to make it work, putting people on to the uh, uh, of course, the lease agreement with you and everything else. But at the end of the day, that's a risk many landlords uh, don't want to have to deal with and have to make. Um, they certainly don't, it sh certainly shouldn't be something forced on them. After all, the property is theirs. Now, into the Section 8 housing um, or, you know, types of housing vouchers. You know, the regulation on this is big. It requires on the landlord, it requires many inspections, processes, and paperwork. And are they saying that a landlord must go through that process no matter what? Because if you're saying a landlord can't discriminate based upon source of rental income, if I'm saying I can't say sorry, no section A, and the way I'm saying, and the part of the reason why I'm saying sorry, no section A is because I don't want to deal with the federal government and the local government rigmaroles that go into the mass amount of paperwork and inspections that go into leasing out a home I want to be simple and straightforward and not be a, a arduous task just to rent out a property to somebody. If that's what I want to do, I should be allowed to do that. But if they're saying you have to take it, they're saying that if you're a landlord, you have to go through this process. If somebody applies for it and they're Section 8, you're not allowed to simply think of the fact that you have to go through this process as a reason not to rent to them. And, and this also goes into how do you enforce this, right? If a person... Um, doesn't say no section eight, but they have renters come up and then they rent to people who aren't section eight. And every time they're like, well, I just don't want to go through the paperwork. Are you saying that they can get sued for simply not wanting to do the paperwork? Are they going to try to enforce this the same way they try to enforce some kind of kind of racial hiring quotas? If you don't hire enough of the right race or, or sexual orientation or gender, well, then you can leave yourself open to lawsuit from the government for, for, being a racist company, even if race had nothing to do with it. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you enforce this because you don't know what's actually going on through someone's mind. But what they're saying is what they got to be saying is they literally want to force property owners to fill out endless amounts of paperwork, endless inspections. And, and, and keep in mind too, the average landlord only owns one, two houses, maybe three. They're not giant, big, evil companies. They're just people, most of whom are retired. And, and you know what? They do provide a valuable service as well. And unless you're advocating for government ownership of all property, so communism, or advocating for forced government housing loans, which I mean, we all saw the 2008 financial crisis in large part caused by loose home loan policies because of government promulgating regulations that kind of force that on the loan company. So you've got people. So, so because of all this, you got people who banks are willing to take a risk on and they're willing now to take a risk on you paying your rent. So in turn, they make a profit for taking on that risk. That is how it works. When, when you make profit, it needs to come from one of two places. Morally speaking, it should come from one of two places. This is what I've always said. You have to be taking a risk or you have to be doing work. That is why you deserve to make a profit. That is why you deserve to make money. You've taken risks or you're working. And people who make big money typically are making their money off taking risks. And the reason why they're making big money off taking risks is because you're limited 
to however many hours you can work a week. But if you're willing to make money off taking risks, well, you can take as many risks as you feel comfortable taking. Uh, and you're not as limited just by how many hours are in the day like you are if you're just deciding to make money off selling your labor. And so they make money off renting because they're taking a risk. They're, they've taken a loan perhaps, or they've paid cash for something. And now they're taking a risk that you burn their house down. They're taking a risk that you don't pay your rent. They're taking the risk that you destroy the place and they got to take care of it because there's somebody most likely, especially if they got a loan on the place, there's a bank somewhere that's with their handout saying, you better pay me or else. And now they're the ones with that, uh, with them staring down the barrel of that gun. And so they're passing some of that risk off while also taking on the risk that they're ultimately responsible to the banks. And you can hate it all you want. You can hate the fact this works. And you know, at the end of the day, if you're alone in the woods, you'd have to work for food and shelter anyways, just because we've modernized and no longer does everyone need to just toil in the dirt for food and shelter. Doesn't mean people have a right to anything. Suddenly you still have to work for what you get in this world and you have to get it from somebody or you can, Go try to provide it for yourself, food, water, shelter, so on and so forth. But I don't think many of these people actually given the option to go out into the woods uh, and said, here you go. Here's a little area where you can set up your own shelter and you can go forage and hunt for food and uh, and you can you can work that out would actually be willing to do that or survive. I think they would all end up dead. But anyway, so now the fact that Section 8 um, – Let's talk about, you know, Section 8 and the quality of care tenants pay to it, too. So we're talking about forcing them to go through this government regulations or everything else. Now we're talking about quality of care that Section 8 tenants tend to pay to the property. And, of course, the level of regulation. And this also, too, as well, will affect uh, housing for people who are um, uh, not, you know, on the edge of. So, so let me give you an example here. Okay, let me tell you who this affects too as well when you're forcing down this type of thing. So right now, um, Section 8, you know, landlords can decide not to take Section 8 and they may take a lower rent for doing so. And they say, sorry, no Section 8, but I'll take a lower rent than I maybe could get if I did open myself up to Section 8 housing simply because I don't want to deal with that level of paperwork and regulation. And also too, I'm feel like it's a riskier tenant because they can and maybe perhaps destroy the place because really they're only paying, you know, something like 25 bucks or so a month. So let's take, um, let's take a family of two. So a family two, according to this is, this is current kind of section eight rules. So in order for a family of two, um, to qualify for section eight housing. So a household size of two, you'd need to make uh, less than about $41,000 a year. And they prioritize, of course, lesser pe people making lesser money than that for approvals before they prioritize higher. And then the amount that they'll pay for rent is a fewfold. It's based upon 30% of gross, but you got to pay a minimum of 25 bucks a month. Um, and then also too, they have a max rent. And so right now the max amount Section 8 will pay for a two-bedroom in a town like Lexington is $911. So $911 for a two-bedroom apartment in Lexington, that is what Section 8 will pay. So if you have to go through that rigmarole, so now you're forcing everybody to go through it. So if I'm a landlord and I normally rent out for $750, $800, bucks, 
700 bucks even. But now I'm forced to go through Section 8 inspections and Section 8 rigmarole and Section 8 paperwork. And then if somebody applies and they pay their rent through Section 8, I now have to take them. I might as well raise my rent up to 900 bucks. I mean, I got to deal with all that headache anyways. I was willing to take less rent to not deal with that, but now I have to. So I might as well say, hey, look, you know, it's 900 bucks, $911, pay up. Pay up. And who this really affects is that household of two, like a single mom, that's just over that 41000 a year. That's who it's going to affect the most. I mean, take, take a mother, single mom, making forty five k a year. She won't qualify for Section 8 in Lexington. But she's making 45 k a year. That's $37.50 a month. Take out old Uncle Sam's cut. That takes it down to $3,100 a month. Well, now you got a single mom having to pay $900 a month in rent instead of a lower $600, $700. Child care costs, of course, have been jacked up too due to Uncle Sam paying for people just under this income bracket to also receive free child care from the government at a set price. So now that's raising up the cost of child care to $225, $500 a week. And before she's ever put food on her table, paid a utility bill or anything else, this mom here, the single mom, is paying close to $2,000 a month out of her 3100 net take-home, leaving only $1,100 before she's paid for gas, car, food, utilities, anything. Anything. She's only got $1,100 left over because of these two items, child care and housing, that old Uncle Sam has come and decided to subsidize out of the goodness of their hearts, quote-unquote. And now who's really getting screwed is the person who's trying to work hard, trying to make it just over that mark of where the government will help you out. And, and because you don't want to freeload off everyone else, instead of rewarding somebody for not freeloading, instead of rewarding somebody for working hard, instead we're punishing them by raising their costs to exist. What incentive is there to go out and work for 45K a year? You might as well take a $10,000 pay cut, $20,000 pay cut, work part-time, and get two grand a month back to you in the form of free housing and childcare. And I'm not saying every single person on Section 8 is a freeloader. I get it. Some people may really need Section 8. But let me give you a little stat here, okay? You know, welfare was supposed to be a crutch. Welfare is supposed to be a hand up, not a handout. But according to the people who administer Section 8, HUD, according to HUD, the average amount of time people spend on housing assistance, Section 8 assistance, is six years. That ain't a hand up. That ain't a crutch. That's a hammock and a handout. Six years. For six years, you can't, you're unable to provide for yourself. Six years? That's the average. There's people on there longer than that. 10 years, 15 years. You can't make enough money to provide for yourself. That is a welfare program. That's what it is. And if you say the welfare program has to exist because housing is too expensive, well, you're not helping it with this government assistance. It's just bad policy all around. You're violating property rights. You're making property owners submit to, to government regulations that they probably didn't have to. You're driving up prices on hardworking people. You're causing a lower amount of available inventory on the market because who wants to rent in a city where they're worried about them passing other parts of the, the tenant bill of rights as well. And so it's like, this is, this is what happens. 
the people who get screwed are the hardworking people. But what kind of policies? And they get taxed to pay all these people. And then also at the same time, they're now getting affected by the subsidizing of the government in these industries. But what, what do we expect, huh? What do we expect and what kind of policies do we expect from forever childish adults that just sit in a corner yelling, my, 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 mind, give me, give me, give me. This is what I want. It should be this way. It's just not fair. You know, not understanding the world, hoping that if they annoy enough adults in the room, someone might give in. Well, I think it's time we start telling these man-childs, women-childs to grow up. Well, coming up after this, App Harvest has moved into the selling off of properties while in bankruptcy court. We'll go over just how clear it is that the taxpayers got the short end of the stick on uh, this one after this short break. About a month or two ago, I took an episode to tell you, the listener, about the saga of the Kentucky company, App Harvest, a company that Bashir once called Kentucky's next Toyota that has now filed for and gone bankrupt. And through telling of the story, I went over how the company and the people running it were clearly a bad investment from the start, from missing construction deadlines to uh, costs going way beyond their, their budgets on construction, to leadership that had no clue how to operate their growing facilities uh, and had no clue what they were doing to begin with. And for those who are unaware, what App Harvest was, was a company that uh, ran giant greenhouses, some of the largest in the world, here in Kentucky. And it was indoor, basically hydroponic growing. And the idea was is that uh, you could put up these greenhouses in parts of the country where maybe they didn't have as much farmland or ability to grow these items like tomatoes. And as such, you could then bring, uh, instead of having to import your vegetables from Mexico and other places, you could grow them right here in the U.S. You could hire people in areas that need jobs. And all you would need to do is put together these greenhouses, and then you could employ them in it to essentially be indoor farmers. Um, and it sounds great. It really does. You could build these on, you know, uh, any open land you have, you can build this up, you can employ a couple hundred people. Uh, it would really seem like a golden bullet solution. And that's why the government loved it. But it was clear they were missing these deadlines. Leadership sucked. They had no clue what they were doing. They didn't even know how to grow things indoors properly and to create a good product. But this did not stop our government from getting involved and deciding to throw our money, taxpayer dollars, away in support of this company. And as I said, it hit some really key points. It was new agey, but understandable, right? It was cool, new technology, indoor growing of plants and, and vegetables and farming on large scale, but indoors... However, at the same time, it was understandable. We're just growing tomatoes and selling them. It's not some hard to understand concept. We are growing a, 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 a vegetable indoors or cucumbers or berries, fruits, whatever. We're growing that indoors and then we're going to sell them and it's food. And you understand that people understand farming. It's just farming indoors. So it's easy for these people to understand but it was still new agey. 
Also as well, it promised to bring jobs in areas where they want to bring jobs, like rural Kentucky and the Appalachians, where they say we really, really need jobs because they have, you know, not necessarily high unemployment rates, but a whole lot of low workforce participation. And they swear if we just throw jobs in this area, we promise that they'll work. That's a completely different topic, though, for a different podcast. But the jobs it brought were straightforward and easy for uh, in the minds. I'm not saying rural people can't handle complicated jobs, but in the minds of our so-called political betters or government betters, they do think that way. And they say, look, this is simple. They just need to pick plants, harvest them. This is something that rural Kentuckians and, and you know, you it's hard to see a minor coding. We remember that, of course, joke. But it's easy to see somebody who used to mine coal uh, uh, helping plant and harvest, uh, you know, tomatoes, right? It's farming. So honestly, and, and honestly, if it was run by better people who had more experience, understanding of farming, more experience of how to build a greenhouse and more experience and knowledge when it came to just the entire operational part, um, it could have been pretty successful. However, uh, what they had was, is they, they were a company born of the toxic, startup culture that exists in this country. And by toxic startup culture, I mean a culture that values things like fancy offices and, the, and monetary values too. Things like fancy office buildings and pie-in-the-sky dreams that look good and possible on paper but will never actually happen. And anybody with actual experience could tell you this. They value these companies, companies that <laughs> don't even make profits or returns. I mean, we've got giant companies worth billions of dollars that are not profitable and some have never made a profit at all. And I'm talking big companies like Snapchat, Pinterest, Zillow, Peloton for a long time, Lyft for a really, really long time. And it's still unclear on if they can return a full year of profitability. You know, these are big name companies you know of, I know of that really are not very profitable. But this is what investors value. And, and, and you know what? It's fine if startup investors want to value these types of things because what they're looking for is moonshots, not just simply good returns on every investment. They don't even care about profitability. What the investors want, what early investors want, is they want you to build up a company that then can be released for an IPO while they hold good stock. It can shoot up. A lot of excitement over the IPO can shoot up. They can sell off during the IPO. And while the stock's at its highest, they make ton of return on their money, a really high returns. And if that's what private investors want to do, then that's what they want to do. I mean, most of these startup private investors are not investing in companies that they have a really, 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 really good chance of just making back their money and then making maybe 5% on their investment or so each year, year after year. No, they want to invest in a company that then they can get 100, 1,000 times more return. And even if it's a one out of 10 or one out of 100 chance that it would happen, it is worth it to them to do. It's worth it to them to dump money in long shot companies with bad leadership because they're hoping that one of them will hit it big, get a thousand time returns. And then it doesn't matter if they got one out of a hundred wrong because they overall have made big, big money. But that's not what government should be doing. They aren't gambling with their money. They're gambling with ours. And App Harvest was certainly and obviously a gamble. You know, one year before App Harvest would start to publicly signal its failure, almost two years ago, the USDA, federal government, guaranteed a $50 million uh, in loans 
to app harvest in order to finish the construction on a greenhouse in Somerset, Kentucky, a greenhouse that was supposedly already 70% completed or so. And they needed the loan to finish off the rest. Well, as a part of selling off assets, App Harvest uh, has done to pay off creditors. One of the things that they've sold is that greenhouse. They sold it to a dust company, Bosch Growers. They sold it to them for $44 million. So a few years ago, the taxpayer basically ended up giving App Harvest $50 million because remember, we backed and guaranteed the loan and now the taxpayers are left holding the bag for it or at least part of it. So, we, so the taxpayer gives them $50 million to complete 30% left of this building. $50 million to build 30% of it. That building just sold for $6 million less than the loan we backed for them, the $50 million we gave them to finish out the other 30%. $6 million less than what was needed to finish out the 30%. Now, does this sound like a good deal to anyone listening? Does that sound like a quality agreement that we entered into? That sound like something we should have put money in and invested in in the first place? And of course, I'm leaving out all the local government and state government tax carve-outs, government-funded job training programs that were created specifically for App Harvest through our publicly ran universities and all the incentives that the states gave to them and gave up. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I'm just talking about the federal government loan of $50 million for finishing out 30% of a, of a building that just sold for $44 million. But should this slow or give pause to our state or country and its continued push to literally steal taxpayer funds and use them to fund risky business propositions? They're agreed to in secret before the taxpayer even has a chance to weigh in on how their money is being spent or invested for them? No, of course not. It will not be. These people think they know best. The little bureaucrats of the economic development group with their little plans think that you're too stupid to get to weigh in on how your tax dollars are invested with private companies. You can't be trusted with the information in the first place. They have to sign non-disclosures promising they won't tell you, the taxpayer, about how your money is being spent. Does that sound backwards to you? You're not even allowed to legally know where your tax dollars are being invested, quote unquote, where your tax dollars, what private companies are receiving your money, you're not even allowed to know about it till after it was happened. You, It's impossible for you to weigh in on whether or not you think it's a good investment because they're legally not even allowed to tell you about it. Do you know what the yearly budget is for economic development in Kentucky at the state level? This year's budget, $285 million. $285 million, a quarter over a quarter of a billion dollars in one year. And you have no idea where that money is going till after it's been given out. Almost all of it's being used to give money to private companies. And of course, it isn't even being done with a good investment mindset. It's used to fund things that either you disagree with or just funding a leftist agenda. I mean, we all know the Ford battery plant from the prior years that got 410 million. I talk about it a lot and you could say that's funding a leftist agenda, but we're talking about things like funding uh, nonprofits that only help 
diverse individuals, startup companies. I mean, things we've spent tens of millions of dollars on. Programs that say if your skin color isn't the right hue or you identify the wrong way of your gender, well, then you won't get to partake in this government taxpayer-funded program. And then we wonder why we don't trust our government. If they aren't blowing our money funding crazy far-left social agenda items or using it to provide uh, unequal access to programs we should all qualify for because, of course, we're funding them, if you're using our money to discriminate against people like that, that if that was how they were only using it, I mean, that would at least be a political argument, but that's not it. I mean, they're making investment decisions for us. You know, things like giving someone $50 million to complete the last 30% of a building that ends up selling a year or so later for $6 million less than what we gave them to finish 30% of it. Well, that's what we have time for today on the video format. But for you podcast listeners, stay with us because after this break, we'll be discussing how Bashir uh, uh, sending out, has apparently sent out, over 1.2 million in checks and funds from the Western Kentucky uh, Relief Fund that would appear should have never been sent in the first place. We'll be covering that after this short break for you video only listeners. We'll see you back here tomorrow, but for you podcast listeners, we'll see you here just after this short break. In the aftermath of the Western Kentucky tornadoes, the state government and Bashir did something pretty unprecedented. Bashir created a relief fund that was state run. Uh, but people could donate into it. Private citizens could donate into it. Think of it like a nonprofit, but instead of being run by a board, uh, a 501c3 board, it's being run by the government. This created a lot of issues. First, uh, it's an odd end around uh, of any kind of regulation or double checking on how the money is being spent. Because typically if the governor wants to spend money, well, he's getting it from the legislature and they're appropriating it and then in budget bills. And then that creates oversight, you know, legislature is power of the purse strings. But in this case, this wasn't monies that the governor got access to through the legislature, but by groups and people giving it to him. So it kind of ends around the legislature controlling the money because he's getting it directly from the citizens. And it wasn't a small sum either. I mean, to date, it has raised $52 million, money that Bashir has almost complete and utter control of. Now, I have no idea on why anybody would give money to a government charity fund, give it to a nonprofit that clearly can do things much better than the government ever can. And this is a perfect example. This is why nobody should ever donate money to government funds. Like, what are you people thinking? And this is the perfect example why. Because the other night during the auditor debate, current state treasurer Allison Ball talked about how, as auditor, she has a desire to audit these funds. And she pointed to not just 200 checks, but over 1,000 checks, $1.2 million worth of mishandled monies that possibly points to a much, much larger issue out of these funds. So about eight months ago, Bashir sent out $10,000, $1,000 checks out of the Western Kentucky Fund to people he claimed were affected by the Western Kentucky tornadoes. Now, did he verify that these people needed the money, laid eyes on their homes, made sure they were in the path? Uh, no, of course not. 
Um, he claims he got this list from uh, FEMA, but um, FEMA says they don't know how he got this list. So he sends out these $1,000 checks to people he claims were impacted by the tornadoes. In all actuality, um, and, and, and not only that, but these $1,000 checks, horrible idea in the first place. I mean, if you had an entire home wiped out by tornado or destroyed, I don't think $1,000 means all that much to you. And if you're barely affected, insurance covered it all, uh, all you had to pay was a $500 or $2,500 deductible, and that's fine, and, and, and you're pretty well off, and you were easily able to cover that, $1,000 really doesn't mean anything to you then. I mean, you'd be better off not sending out $10 million, more than $10 million and $1,000 checks, and instead targeting that for the people who need it. And that's why this government, I mean, but that's how government works. Our idea of charity is we'll just give everybody cash. How often do you ever see charities actually doing that? How many charities do you know of that just gives people just straight cash to directly to citizens? <laughs> A charity either gives grants to people to complete work or things like that, if that's what they are. But in this case, a charity would not just give people cash. They would build them the house. They would get them the food. They would give them clothes. They would give them the items. If you give money to a charity, it doesn't turn around and give money to the charity recipient. It gives them uh, items and services that they need, but not cash because they want to make sure their needs are being met as efficiently as possible. And just giving them cash is not the best way to do that. And that's not the way to serve them the best one. You'd never know what they're going to spend the cash on. But two, um, you know, you have connections, you're dealing in large groups of movements, you know, you're maybe you're buying large amounts of food or large amounts of clothes. You're able to negotiate lower prices. You're able to stretch that dollar a whole lot farther. And so that's why they hardly ever give them cash. But of course, leave it to the government to say, let's just send everybody a thousand dollar checks. And of course, you know, the reason why he did this is he was vote buying. Because with these $1,000 checks came little letters that said, this is from Bashir. I'm all great. I'm all amazing. Here's $1,000. Blah, blah, blah. You should love me. Right? So why did Bashir send these out and he's vote buying? And, and so what's the issues here? So these 10,000 checks go out. And then the treasurer's office starts getting calls from about 200 citizens saying, uh, I was sent a check for $1,000 and... I didn't even get damaged by a tornado. And so the treasurer's office, they canceled the check. And they talked about that at the time, about this 200K that at least was mistakenly sent out. Well, in the debate, Allison Ball stated that over a thousand of the 10,000 checks that were sent out have never even been cashed. So that's about 1.2 million or over 10% that was sent to places or people, it clearly should have never been sent. And that's what we know about. I mean, imagine if 200 people called in saying, I got this check and I wasn't supposed to. How many people do you think are honest enough to do that? They get a check from the government for a grand? How many people do you think, what percentage of people are honest enough to call into the government and tell them you sent me this check and you didn't mean to? Well, what percentage do you think that is? Honestly, I think it's a pretty low percent. I think it's certainly less than 20%, but let's go with 20%. So if that means 20% called in and said that, well, it's easy to assume then that really a million went out to who it shouldn't have that cashed or another 800,000 went out to people that it shouldn't have and they cashed the checks 
And now you got a million of checks going out to people that should have never received checks in the first place. Because of course it hasn't been cashed. That means it didn't show up. They chose not to cash it. Their their damages wasn't done. They didn't have a house to send it to, but you sent it anyways. And the check has gotten lost. So it's very likely Bashir sent out over two million in checks from a government private charity account that he shouldn't have done. And this is why government shouldn't do charity. Do you think a private charity would ever accidentally send out two million dollars in checks to people it shouldn't have? Of course not. That is completely unfathomable. I've never heard of such a thing. But yet, this is what happens. This is what Bashir preys on people who turn to the government to solve their problems. And this is just another example of why government ain't charity. Government ain't here to solve your problems. Stop asking them to. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperator Show. I thank you all so, so much for joining me. We'll be back tomorrow right around 1 o'clock with our next episode. Have a great rest of your day.